right, brothers and sisters, we're back again for our second talk. Uh, our last talk was titled, What Does the Bible Say About Race and Why It Matters? And this second talk is where we now see it in society. That is where we now see what the Bible says about race and racism happening in society, particularly in D.C., and how we might respond. I want to remind us yet again of our stated goal for our meeting. You can see it on your dense handout. They're coming around. Thank you, brother. Uh, what we're desiring to do in this time is to play a small role. I appreciate the humility in that word small. We'll come back to that. And bringing greater awareness to the historical roots and present forms of racism in our city. The goal is not merely greater intellectual knowledge, but greater compassion so that we are better positioned to empathize and strategize toward the end of adorning the doctrine of God, our Savior. That phrase, adorning the doctrine of God, our Savior, it comes from Titus 2.10. And after verse 10, Paul, in his letter to Titus, says why we ought to adorn the gospel. And I'm going to read Paul's words on your handout. Uh, and not that there's anything magical about this, but in reverence for God's word, uh, if you're able to, just please stand as I read this. Explaining why we ought to adorn the gospel, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. There's the diversity we just talked about, all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You may be seated. Zealous... For good works, redeemed from all lawlessness. Brothers and sisters, uh, I read this to make a simple point. Christians care and should care about justice, about righteousness. We ought to be zealous in good works. And that work is summed up in the command to love our neighbor as ourselves. We'll come back to that. I was reading uh, Proverbs in my quiet time just the other day, and I was struck by the opening. Look there on your handout. It says, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. We love Justice. We hate injustice. And I know this because if someone broke into Nathan's house tonight, stole his stuff, was caught and taken to court, you would be thankful. Until the judge called the thief up to the bench, leaned over, winked at the thief and said, you know, you took Nathan's stuff, but don't worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. You know, we, we would be beside ourselves on Nathan's behalf because we love justice, at least when it's justice directed towards someone else, but that's for another talk. We hate injustice. And beloved, we are that way because God is that way. As we talked about in our last talk, as we built from the Bible up, we are made in his image. 
And the Lord who we image is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works, the psalmist says. Through Isaiah, God tells his people to learn to do good, to seek justice, which makes sense because later Isaiah says, For I, the Lord, love justice. We see this all over the Old Testament, that God's people should not be partial. In our last talk, James gave that same command. My brother, show no partiality. And we'll see the heart of that command even more clearly from the mouth of our Lord soon. It's enough to say for now, we are here to seek justice in light of racism. And a specific kind of racism. Systemic racism. Or what's called institutional racism or structural racism. These are all synonyms. Why systemic racism? Question number two on your handout. Why systemic racism? Because most people, not all, most people see and abhor individual racism. That is racism done by one individual to another. Uh, Most people know we shouldn't do that or harbor prejudice. Uh, Most people agree uh, racism is not a ship that should be harbored in the docks of our hearts. And yet I say most people uh, because I think sometimes in this conversation we say, oh, everyone agrees this kind of racism is bad. And I declare this morning that is not true. In 2015, I was walking down the street on Capitol Hill, one of the nicest neighborhoods in the world, and I was holding my wife's hand. My wife is white. And another white man walking past called me a nigger and a rapist. I talk about that in an experience, uh, that experience in an article I listed on uh, the last page of your handouts. But friends, there are individual racists in our city who are alive and well. This is why we have to be careful in talking about race. If we say, "Oh, everyone's against individual racism," then we are embrace, then we are en- enabling passivity when it comes to interrogating our own minds, attitudes, and prejudices. That said, believing the best. I do think most of us mean to abhor individual racism, which makes sense when we consider the fact that American evangelicals are highly individualistic. I know that's a big claim. Uh, that could be its own talk, but a good book making that argument uh, is divided by faith. It's, I, there's info about all the books in your handout that I'm going to mention. And I did an interview uh, with the author. You can check that uh, interview out at the link in the footer of your handout, too. Now, we should praise God, brothers and sisters, that there has been progress here in a culture, in terms of a culture-wide condemnation of overt individual racism. This was not the common mind for the society my mom grew up in. And we ought to recognize this progress and praise God for it. Uh, To not recognize progress is to rob God of glory. That said... The problem is not that a lot of people see and abhor individual racism, but that a lot of people, including many who hold authority in our governments, both local and national, in our churches, in many institutions, a lot of people only see individual racism. And I think this is due to two-speed thinking, as we talked about last in our last talk. Why do I raise this idea yet again? I raise it because often... When I talk about race, I notice that many of our initial impulses are to identify ourselves as good people. 
As we react to the shameful connotations of racism, it seems that we reflexively, instinctively want to defend ourselves with, I'm not a racist, and I'm not a judgmental person. So Kelly, this is what you were talking about. And again, I think that's partly because this sin is so mystified in our churches because we hardly talk about it. Perhaps you've even felt some of those impulses this morning. This impulse, while understandable, is somewhat missing the point. Rarely do I encounter a churchgoer who harbors an active, explicit prejudice against another racial group. Though I say that, and even with saying that, there was a brother who confessed to me very recently that he very much does. But if this lack of overt racism means that I'm not a racist, and you're not a racist, then why is there still so much racial inequality and conflict today? Systemic racism will help explain. As we said earlier, we're interested in proper definitions, and sometimes it helps to define something by saying what it's not. So, systemic racism is not a hoax created by the left-wing media. And though people from the left may take this idea to the extreme and say it exists everywhere in all things and that this is the only problem uh, in the world, that doesn't mean the people on the right should take it to the other extreme and say it exists nowhere. Uh, When we talk about systemic racism, we're not talking about a liberal boogeyman. What's more, systemic racism is not a denial of individual agency. What do I mean? By that I mean it's not some excuse to say, that, to say that people are not responsible for their actions because the cause is the evil of systemic racism. No, beloved, our doctrine of sin won't allow for that. All people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23 says. But again, beware of two-speed thinking. Beware of a position that says the scriptures only talk about individual responsibility. Because the Bible also makes clear that systems that oppress people can make obedience to God harder. Look at that passage from Exodus on your handout. This is why the categories of racial oppression that we established in our last talk are so helpful. Let's look at the racial oppression of the Israelites. Moses writes, the more they, the more they, the Israelites, were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Fast forward to chapter 6 where Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Brothers and sisters, systemic oppression makes obedience hard. As I was writing this talk, I felt like, man, I sound defensive. The people who give up a Saturday to talk about this likely agree with me. I don't need to be defensive. But then I realize, no, I mean to defend these ideas. Because there are so many ideas and attitudes out there that push back on them and I think facilitate the ongoing oppression of our neighbor. I'll give you one example. When unarmed black men were being killed by the police, and I readily admit 
that these are convoluted cases in which justice sometimes may have been served. But nevertheless, during these killings, I remember thinking, well, if that guy would have just followed the rules, he would have been fine. Two things are wrong with that thought. First, it's not true. And to think it is is to imply the victim is always wrong and the authority is always right. And yet the racial history of this country makes clear authority can be abused. But what's worse is the second point. Someone later pointed out to me that God does not treat me that way. He he does not say, just follow the rules. No, he sends his son to die for rule breakers. Brothers and sisters, beware. Cold, callous mindsets do not move us to love our neighbors suffering the effects of systemic racism. They keep us from them. And I think that makes us complicit in the system, but we'll come back to that later. It's enough to say for now that even if you agree with me, I think you'll be helped to shore up why it is you agree with me. So let's get on and say what we mean by systemic racism. Biblically speaking, Esther in Egypt gave us a category for racism that can be codified into a society and institutions, the law, the military, whatever it may be, and lead to the oppression of image bearers. And yet ongoing tensions between Jews and Gentiles show that even if explicit laws are taken off the books, the effects of those laws can linger on. That's a really important point. To put it differently, let me offer another Christian's writer explanation of how people see structural racism. Systemic racism is the claim that society can perpetuate racism even when the individuals in the society do not intend to be racist. This occurs because humans are affected by the social structures in which they live. People do not merely make personal choices. They make choices influenced by the structures of their society. Therefore, merely exhorting weak-willed individuals, to be clear, he's talking about all y'all, to to, therefore, to merely exhort weak-willed individuals to stop sinning will not solve racism. Our social structures must also be reformed. Structural injustice occurs when an ostensibly fair system produces unjust results. So our working definition of systemic racism is racism that's codified or embedded into a society and its institutions, even those in which the members do not intend to be racist, which can linger in subtle ways. Subtle ways, covert ways. This is the question we were talking about earlier. The books recommended on your handout, uh, specifically Race and Place, Divided by Faith, they give you good illustrations of systemic racism. Uh, but so that we can talk about this reality in our city, Washington, D.C., I'm just going to let our working definition rest. I do want to add, though, that uh, when systemic racism is brought up, it is a claim that reveals, not a claim that exposes, but a claim that, re- or not a veal that creates, but a claim that reveals. It exposes the great divide, the great rub in the race conversation. And that divide happens over the question that was on this invitation to this event. Has racism largely been resolved or not? Does race dramatically affect the life experiences, opportunities, and relationships of people in society or not? How you answer these questions 
will affect so much of you, of how you view and far- participate in conversations about race. Why would you be here this morning if you thought racism was largely resolved? In response to these questions, one group will effectively say the work has largely been done. The other will say the work still needs to be done. One group will ask the question, is there injustice? The other will ask, how can we go about combating the injustice? The theologian Michael Horton speaks to this divide powerfully. He says, some cultural warriors on the right have claimed recently that social justice is code for secular humanism. Its very mention should raise red flags. Part of that is due to the tendency sometimes to separate the Great Commission from the Great Commandment to speed thinking. Yet the gospel does not relieve us of the duty to love God and neighbor. Social justice is not a conversation that anyone can opt out of. Every day we are engaged in secular rituals that either support or threaten the good of our neighbor. Beloved, systemic racism is a secular ritual. Hard to see, but no less real than carbon monoxide. And the reason we can't smell systemic racism or see it is not because it's not there, but because we are so used to seeing it. The reason, I want to say it again, we can't smell systemic racism or see it is not because it's not there, but because we are so used to seeing it. You are so used to driving by that broke-down community. You are used to assuming one community is going to look this way and another community is going to look this way. Friends, the effects of racism of the past, which linger and roll on today, are so ingrained in our city and our congregations that we don't even notice them. We, we assume them. We take them for granted. It's hard to see systemic racism as one thing. This makes it even harder to see because it has infiltrated so many things. Wealth, employment, education. Criminal justice, housing, health care, church. Bible scholars talk about the quartet of the vulnerable that we see in Scripture, the poor, the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And you can trust that this quartet whimpers a shrill note in no small part because of the sin of systemic racism. On the back of your hand, I have an article about a land being stolen from blacks in Mississippi, and it reminds me of Proverbs 13, 23. A poor person's farm may produce much food, but injustice sweeps it all away. Proverbs 13, 23. Or you can read, about J- or you can read James 5 about the rich oppressing the workers of the field. Now, James 5 isn't explicitly about racism, but here's the thing about racism, friends. It is the Velcro sin. The sin so many other sins stick to. Classism. Sexism. Often orbit around and latch on to racism. And so I am at least sympathetic to people who say systemic racism is not the shark, but the water itself. And yet that water is hard to see. Sometimes the water splashes up and we can see it. 
Uh, so when my two-year-old uh, was given this big comfy chair for her birthday, the chair was covered in Disney princesses. Sounds like a magical gift. Yet all of the princesses were white. What is that teaching my daughter? And yet the water is still hard to see. A pastor who knows Nathan and I well, I remember he said this. He said, when we're talking about systemic racism, I just have no idea what we're actually talking about. There are no more colored sections on buses. There are no more whites only above our drinking fountains. Clear villains are now hard to see. Walls that divide our communities are invisible. And yet that doesn't mean these walls, these villains, have gone away. No, they're still among us. I listed uh, the arenas that they terrorized earlier, wealth, employment, education, criminal justice, housing, health care, church, and more. Nathan, there is no way I can talk about all of these in light of the history of D.C. in one talk, okay? You're a big meanie for asking me to do that. That's racist, okay? <laughs> Just kidding. Um, but real talk, I have to limit the focus on what I'm going to talk about. So I'm going to pick two of these areas of systemic racism in D.C. to focus on. And the first will be housing. Uh, and I'm now moving to page two of your handout. Oh, we always need context if we're going to understand the matters that we're discussing today. Uh, the church members in my church know that I say the three most important rules of reading the Bible are one, context, two, context, and three, context. The most important rules of reading the race conversation are the same. Context, context, context. So let's take a quick 30,000-foot view of Washington, D.C. and its black population. I meant to say this at the beginning. I'm focusing on the black population, one, because that's what I know. Uh, So I'm not implying and don't mean to imply that this has not touched the Hispanic population in our city, the immigrant population from wherever uh, or from whatever nation, Um, but simply because this is what I know, one, and two, because I do think this is the archetypal conversation. What do I mean? I think this is the original conversation that was happening on these shores that if you understand this conversation, you will naturally understand those conversations. So, um, 30,000 feet view of Washington, D.C. and its black population. First, D.C. is founded July 16, 1790 as the nation's capital. African Americans make up 25% of the population in 1800. The majority of them are enslaved, but most are freed by 1830. Nevertheless, on April 16, 1862, Congress passed the District of Columbia Emancipation Act making Washingtonians the first freed in the nation. Nine months before, Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation in January 1863. Next, during the Civil War, so 1861 to 65 and Reconstruction, more than 25,000 African Americans moved to Washington. By 1900, Washington had the largest percentage of African Americans of any city in the nation. So you might have heard the city being called Chocolate City. That's why. In 1948, the Supreme Court declared racially restrictive housing covenants were unconstitutional uh, in the local Heard versus Hod case. In 1957, Washington's African-American population surpassed the 50% mark, making it the first predominantly black major city in the nation and leading a nationwide trend. 
By 1975, African Americans were politically and culturally leading the city with more than 70% of the population. According to the 2017 uh, Census Bureau, the black population now today is 49%. Now, to be clear, what I'm not saying is that the decrease in the black population is the systemic racism. I'm not even saying gentrification is, is, is necessarily inherently systemic racism. There are some who see it that way, and there are some who see it as the invisible hand of the market. The, the reason for the downturn in black home ownership rates are varied and complex, which is why we have to be able to understand this conversation with a level of nuance. Uh, The reasons include a lack of affordable housing in some areas and chronically low inventory in others. Rising student debt is increasingly an issue, uh, too, as more financially strapped buyers struggle to uh, save for a down payment. All home buyers face these hurdles, black, white, whatever. But they disproportionately affect African Americans. So that's what I told you what I'm not saying. What I am saying is historically speaking, blacks experienced discrimination for generations that largely prevented them from building on one of the major economic pillars of this country, housing. Let me say very practically why this matters. Historically speaking, if blacks were working the same jobs as whites, yet not being paid as much, which many were, This would affect how you could build wealth. As Isabel Wilkerson states in The Warmth of Other Suns, a resource I put in your handout, the layers of accumulated assets built up by the better-paid dominant caste, generation after generation, would factor into a wealth disparity of white Americans having an average net worth ten times that of black Americans by the turn of the 21st century, dampening the economic prospects of the children and grandchildren of both Jim Crow and the Great Migration before they were even born. In other words, white families were more able to build home equity that allowed white residents to build economically stable lives and send their children to college. So do we see the Velcro happening? Education, housing, racism linked. Another writer reported a different effect of discriminatory housing in D.C. in the early and mid-20th century. Such housing practices were established Uh, have established residential patterns of segregation and disinvestment, meaning this community is no longer investing in this community. These people have taken their resources, their social skills, their social resources, capital, whatever, and they have left that community, which place an additional burden on families of color beyond income. Uh, Today, middle- and high-income black families are far more likely to live in low-income neighborhoods than white families with similar income levels. And black Americans continue to experience lower rates of upward upward economic mobility than white Americans. These these barriers are particularly acute for black men. One economist found that controlling for parental income, black boys have lower incomes in adulthood than white boys in 99% of census tracts. Now, remember what I said in our first talk. Stats are disputable. You might even hear me and be like, hmm, prove it. 
But why is that your reflex? I did get some of these stats from the, from the Washington Post and the D.C. Policy Center. You might think the Post is just a liberal rag. But friend, even if you are the reddest Republican, what I pray we see is that racism ripples. Racism ripples. It has impacts that compound through history. Look at this simple chart on your sheet of American history. Uh, I uh, wanted to print it in color, but alas, here it is in black and white. Uh, But I was just talking during the break about America as a young country. And we see slavery here for 246 years. That's supposed to be red. Segregation uh, for 89, that's supposed to be yellow. And then from 1954 on, that's supposed to be green. Uh, Perhaps you've heard uh, about the magazine, the New York Times. We mentioned this earlier. Just put out about the first slaves coming ashore in 1619. Uh, Just look at at the history of this young country. I'll say it again. 246 years of slavery. 89 years of Jim Crow and segregation. Do we really think the long arm of the past does not bear on the short stub of the present? Do we really think the long arm of the past can simply be fixed in 10 years? Let's say, I've going back to my other example, let's say I've been married to my wife for 40 years. The last five years have been pretty rocky. That makes sense, these rocky five years, if you know that for the first 35 years, I would beat my wife. Yesterday can explain the present day. So it is with the abuse of racism. Context, context, context. I'll just give a free aside here. This is why I think it's so important to understand that in this conversation, there is such a thing as asymmetry. What do I mean? I mean sometimes when people ask, like, why am I like a white person? Why are you telling me I need to listen? Uh, Is it you're implying that black people know more? That's racist. It's like, no, I'm not implying that black people more no more. I'm simply stating that historically speaking, black voices were so marginalized that perhaps they should have an opportunity to speak because there's an imbalance. That was all free. I've claimed that historically blacks experienced discrimination for generations that largely prevented them from building on one of the major economic pillars of this country. And I am also claiming that happens today. A study found that real estate discrimination was pervasive in at least a dozen major metropolitan areas, including the district. African-American testers posing as home buyers were often denied information about special incentives that would have made the purchase easier, and were required, they were required to produce loan pre-approval letters and other documents when whites were not. Or you can go listen to the interview I did with the author of Divided by Faith, Michael Emerson. He tells this great story um, about when he's looking for a home. Michael's white. Um, and white, middle-aged, looks like a white, middle-aged dude. Um, and, you know, Michael's given his life to this work. He, you know, moved into the hood and all these things. But he and his wife are looking for a home. Michael's a professor now. He, he does just fine, it seems. Um, so he... he, he 
sees the house that he's being sh- the houses he's being shown are all these white neighborhoods, and he ke- he keeps telling his real estate agent, "I want to look in black neighborhoods," and the real estate agent says, "Sir, we we can't. I, I can't control for race." And then he goes, "Well, then why are you only showing me white neighborhoods, DC?" We should recognize the difference between the historic examples I have been giving and the one I just gave about the about the study. The one I just gave is more discreet. It's not an official codified redlining policy. That said, this recent example builds upon the evil of the past example. It's so easy to think that because the laws that were overtly racist are off the books... Systemic racism is off the books. But that's not the case. The laws were simply the lit matches that were thrown on the fire of oppression, which is burning down so many communities. The matches may have been blown out, but the fire rages on, my friends. And we got to to move on with that, let me say, to our second example. And this one, ironically, may be a bit closer to home for us uh, because I still think there is an aspect of systemic racism racism in D.C. maintained in our churches. That's what we're going to look at next. Look at the next page in your handout. That we should see racism and its effects in our churches is a reminder that we are still members of a fallen order. You'll find a passage from Acts 6 on your handout. Uh, we see that ethnic partiality is not a 21st century sin. Travis, this gets a little bit to the question you were asking. It's not going to be a one-to-one. Uh, but it plagued the first church. So again, while this isn't an example of a one-to-one correspondence with black and white strife today, it's still instructive. Let's look at the text. Acts 6, 1-7. to Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. There's the quartet of the vulnerable. Do you see class, ethnicity, Velcro? And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching of of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers and sisters, pick out among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who appoint who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurius, and, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. Pause. It just dawned on me. This might make sense of Stephen's speech later on when he's so confident preaching about race. Anyway. Uh, these these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and land, laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. Paying attention to these matters does not prevent God's word from continuing to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Just two observations I want to make, because I've already thrown in five free ones. First, There was some system of food distribution that was ostensibly just and without expressing anyone's individual intent 
the text makes clear that they that there were unjust results showing ethnic partiality. Second, this was in the church. I think sometimes people act so surprised. The culture does this all the time. Act so surprised, like there's sin in the church. Can you believe it? And I'm like, yeah, there's sinners in the church. There's going to be sin in the church. This is obviously an ancient example. Why do I bring it up in light of churches in D.C.? Because the fact that we have black churches and white churches today is in no small part bitter fruit of past segregation. I have, a, uh, I have a book that has more information on this in the research in your handout, but the black church started because the white church wouldn't let its members, who were their brothers and sisters in the Lord, eat at the Lord's table. This, our family meal, they were saying, you cannot have. Though Jesus has prayed, taught us to pray in Matthew 6 to the same father, because we have all been adopted into the same family, they were saying no. Oh, one friend of mine showed me a newsletter from his congregation that boasted. Another thing in our this is what it said. It said another thing in our favor is that we have very few Negroes in our congregation. They tend to hinder the gospel. My friend's church is in Kentucky and was founded in 1818. But Isaac, we're talking about D.C., Travis Rousseau says. Okay. My boy goes to a local congregation in the area. In 1970, 50 years ago, some of y'all are alive making decisions then. Uh, in 19, I, I'm not, as you might guess. In 1970, the pastor of that congregation recounts what one deacon said at a deacon's meeting. The deacons had been discussing integration of their white church because the community was changing. And one deacon of the church which really means this was one of the pastors of the church. Uh, The deacons were probably elders. One deacon of the church said, before we let a nigger join this church, we'll burn this place down. And you know what I love? My boy is black, and he just became the senior pastor. God must just be cheesing up in heaven. It's like that Esther-like sovereignty. This is why the racial story in Esther is so helpful, because it shows us that God is sovereign over systemic oppression. But even that was 50 years ago. Okay, Bob Jones University in South Carolina, a place that prides itself on being a Christian school, banned interracial dating and didn't lift the ban until 2000. But friends, even more than just this general example, what about our own churches and the present-day racial divisions in them? I'm not saying that it's inherently sinful to have congregations made up predominantly of one ethnicity. That's going to happen in the world. I'm not saying there's a magic number in the scripture that says how diverse our congregations must be. I am saying the fact that only 2.5% of churches are multi-ethnic. By multi-ethnic, I mean where one ethnicity does not make up more than 80% of the church. That fact is sad. What are we telling the world? The world to which our unity, Jesus prayed in John 17, would testify to his coming. I fear we are telling them that the gospel trumps everything but race. 
Sadly, Martin Luther King's indictment is still rings true. 11 o'clock is the most segregated hour on Sunday morning. And I hate to say this, but it's true. When we talk about multi-ethnic churches, we're largely talking about a one-sided relationship. We're talking about minorities going to predominantly white churches, not the other way around. Why is that? Well, we could take time on that question, but we need to answer our last question. In light of systemic racism, even in our own city, how can we respond? I have a few thoughts for us. First, it needs to be clear that whenever we talk about the church in response to something, we are necessarily having a conversation about the mission of the church. What we understand the marching orders, the divine directives of the church to be, will inform our expectations of the direction we expect the church to go. We could have a whole other talk just on the mission of the church. That would be a good thing for this. You can give that talk. Uh, But I'll say, just for our purposes here, that I understand the mission of the church to be the Great Commission. So I don't think the mission of the church is to corporately go after this policy or that policy for a whole host of reasons, but it's enough to say, I think, one, we don't have the expertise. We don't have the expertise. And two, other institutions are already trying to do that. But no other institution will preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that we hear preached when, when the church gathers requires us to live in holiness, in love of neighbor. That's our most basic job when the church scatters into society. And that's the framework I want to leave you with as we think about this, the Good Samaritan. If I had more time, I'd read it. Uh, But you know the story likely. A man is beaten up and left for dead on the side of the road. And all the really religious people walk past him. But someone... A man the half-dead man would have ethnically despised comes along and loves him. And Jesus said, this is what it looks like to love your neighbor. And what I think about this is that the Good Samaritan shows us that the point is not fixing a situation, but being faithful. The point is not fixing a situation, but being faithful. So often in this conversation, we want to fix it. I see it... especially in my white brothers and sisters, just this angst to fix it. In many ways, I think that's good. How can we fix systemic racism? Let me burst your bubble. You can't. I mean, look at the chart. You, you can't. But you can be faithful in pushing back on it even if you only push an inch. You never know how God might even use your tiny efforts and prayers. What I love about the faithfulness framework is that there's no off-ramp to it. Fixing something is about an event. I come, I fix, I move on. But there is no moving on from faithfulness. Not until the grave, at least. What's more, faithfulness has a lot of different expressions I mean, you want to do one thing to be faithful as a church, even corporately? Excommunicate racists. Get them off your rolls. That deacon who said that horrible comment should have been fired. 
There's lots of ways to be faithful. So if we only think the only way is reparations, I'll just go, I'll just veer here. Uh, if we only think the, the only way is reparations, um, if... <laughs> If we think that people are going to be satisfied after simply writing a check and that white people are going to stay in this conversation after having some of their money taken, I think that is just wholly naive. I'm not saying reparation shouldn't happen. I'm simply saying the, the net effect will be people leaving this conversation. I gave you your money. Stop complaining. So there are a lot of ways to be faithful. But the fix-it framework really limits thinking and application. And it expects immediate returns when the nature of the kingdom, CHBC members, we've been talking about this at church, when the nature of the kingdom is mustard seed work. We don't get to see the final story here and now. Jesus may come back today. Titus 2 gave us our job description, waiting for the blessed hope. The appearing of our Savior. I know that this conversation is hard. I know that when you see the burning community, it is mad discouraging. But guess what? God sees all the burning in the world. He actually knows exactly why it's happened. God's statistics are not off. They're exactly right. And yet in his strange wisdom, he has not fixed it immediately right now. Perhaps to leave us to learn how to figure out how to love one another and love our neighbor. Perhaps so that we might trust him. God has not done that yet. But this is why the scriptures say the Lord is not slow as some count slowness. With him, a thousand thousand years, American history is like a day. A thousand years are like a day, so American history is like 20 seconds. Oh, friends, let's not try to rush God's watch. If we're going to be involved in the work of pushing back on systemic racism, you've got to have faith. You've got to have faith. So the fix-it framework really limits thinking and application. So if you're asking, how can I fix this? What can I do? Uh, You're asking a good question, but one that reveals that what you need to do is more homework. You need to get a better idea of what you're up against. And so my basic exhortation to you is not to leave this event thinking, well, let's check this racial reconciliation event off the calendar. We did it. We had the conversation. We went to Central Union Baptist. That was so exciting. No, 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 no. Commit to studying this topic. Because there are people broken and bleeding, communities broken and bleeding on the side of the road. You're just used to seeing them there. And what's more, friends, it has never been easier to study. You can just Google stuff. The other day I was Googling D.C. and systemic racism. And I know there's misinformation out there, yes. But I don't think all information is misinformation. Because my experience is walking into this community is amazing. And walking into this community, it's terrible. And it's not only because of systemic racism. It's not, there's, there's more than happened. There's more that's happened than systemic racism, but there's no less that's happened. So it's never been easier to study. You can just Google stuff and you'll find it. Now look at the homework and resources I listed for you and read them. 
But beloved, we won't do this if we are drunk off the comfort we have in our own lives. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll is not the vice of American Christians. Ease is. Brothers and sisters, we've got to study this. I remember showing this graph right here. This one. I remember showing this graph to a smart brother, white brother, and he said, I don't know what I'm supposed to see here. And I was like, huh? Friends, the more homework we do, the less ignorance we will have. The less indifference we will have. And I pray the less coldness we will have. In response to gun violence in the inner city, it's tempting to think, oh, those people there act like animals. Well, maybe they act like animals because they've been put in a cage. The animal behavior is easy to see, and they are accountable for it. They will answer to God and be judged for it. But it's not as easy to see the cage. Not until we give time and thought to systemic racism. One last thought before we close. Joey, how am I doing on time? Well, then I might have two last thoughts. Uh, <laughs> what time did we say for real? 1220. Okay, great, great, great. Uh, one last thought before we close. One thing you can give time and thought to about this is prayer. To be clear, I am not saying that the only work we must do to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace to love our neighbor is to pray we must do more than pray but we can do no less how does your prayer life look about this issue that's one thing the church can do that no other institution can do pray put in your pastoral prayer pray God would reveal to you your hidden faults pray for people to get housing fairly Pray that our churches will still attract the world despite our present day and racial divisions, which we are complicit in supporting. Pray, pray, pray. Because God can do more, than, more with one prayer than, he can do, than you can do in a lifetime of spent in the flesh trying to fix systemic racism. Do you really believe that? I know I haven't at times. So let me pray for us now. Let's pray. Father, we know that coming to you, we come and pray to you as our Father. Whatever race we come from, whatever community we live in, we pray to you as our Father. Father, we confess that probably for too many of us, we have not been prayerful. We have leaned on our own wisdom. Instead of acknowledging you, that you may make our paths straight. We have been more concerned with what we can do in the world, in this or that country, than with the communities that are burning around us. We have accepted that matches have been blown out, so the problem has been blown out. 
Lord, we could, you, could you, would you show us what we can do to be faithful in our own lives and spheres and networks? Lord, we praise you. We praise you that Jesus will fix it one day. We know that you grieve sin far more than we have ever grieved sin. And yet, Lord, we rest because you are not slow as some count slowness. Your son is coming again. He is our blessed hope. We await his appearing. And we ask, Lord, we we ask, we understand now why John prayed, come quickly, Lord. Lord, would you put out the fire and come quickly? Would you end systemic racism and come quickly? Would you forgive us for complicity and come quickly? Would you save people hardened by racists and come quickly? Father, we pray that there would be members of the alt-right in our churches who are repenting. We pray that we would enjoy the diversity and fellowship we have between our churches and that you would give us wisdom. Oh, Lord, would you have us integrate in some other way? Lord, we pray. And yet we know that you are working through us despite us. And so we give you thanks. We ask for help. We want to be faithful. We want to hear those words. Not well done, my servant who fixed it, but well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter now unto the rest of your master. We want to enter into that rest. In Jesus' name, amen.